The Bob Murphy Show, episode 91. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today my guest is Brian Kaplan, whom I've been trying to get on the show for a while now, but he was working on a book. And I think that was the reason it took so long to get him on here. We cover a bunch of material focusing primarily on his new book that's on open borders, but also his essay that's famous or infamous among Austrians called Why I'm Not an Austrian Economist. And at the very tail end, we briefly touch on his position on pacifism, which was more nuanced than I had realized. I thought Brian was a standard pacifist and turns out, arguably, he's not. But in any event, we'll get into that in the interview. So if you don't know who he is, Brian Kaplan is an economist. He's got his bachelor's in economics from UC Berkeley and his PhD in economics from Princeton. And he is currently a professor of economics at George Mason University. And as I'm reading his own uh, description here at bkaplan.com, he's also a New York Times bestselling author. He says, I've written The Myth of the Rational Voter, that's a book, named the best political book of the year by the New York Times, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, The Case Against Education, and the new book, Open Borders, which is co-authored with Zach Wiener-Smith, who is the Saturday Morning Breakfast Cereals person. And uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today, starting out the, the Open Borders book. So without further ado... Here is my interview with Brian Kaplan. Well, Brian, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Fantastic to be here, Bob. (laughs) Why don't we start? I do this a lot with guests that are familiar to the audience. Can you just tell us your brief story as to, you know, how did you get into libertarianism or in your case, even further anarcho-capitalism? Right. So I was in 12th grade, actually a few days before I started 12th grade, I read Atlas Shrugged. And I went through that in three days and got stereotypically hyper about the book and tormented everyone I knew for about a year, telling them to read it and how great it was. And how how did time, you get it? Did somebody recommend it or you just stumbled upon it? Yeah, actually, so my best friend since first grade, uh, Matt Mayers, he had read it earlier and he had passed it to me. I think he actually showed me the, the speech on money in 11th grade and that got me somewhat interested but not interested enough to actually read the book. But then, say, five months later, I did read it and got very excited. And that was the uh, the, uh, the point of contact. Mm-hmm. But then, and did you say you read it in three days? Yeah, I did read it in three days. I was barely sleeping. Sure. I think it was actually fairly common for that book. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've told my sons, it's a really good book to read, but just don't become a monster for a month or so after you right. read it. <laughs> I'm they, they're, they're a lot more grounded than I am, so I'm not so worried about them. Uh, but yeah, so I read Atlas Shrugged then, and... You know, after reading it, then the big question is, well, is any of this actually in any way workable because it went against everything I've been taught about social science and so on from high school teachers and 
almost everything I'd heard about history from history books. I'd been a big history fan for a long time. And so that's when I started reading economics, especially, of course, Ayn Rand recommended Austrian economics. Mm -hmm. And then the summer before I started college, I went to the Mises University at Stanford. I met Murray Rothbard one of the two times, along with all the other people that were lecturing there at the time. I could go through the list if you're really curious. And then I started UC Berkeley, and that's where I learned normal economics. So I learned Austrian economics before I learned normal economics had some very good educational experiences there as well and you know, did a lot more reading. So can I ask you, like, at what point did you know I have to be a college professor teaching economics for my career? Yeah, that's a good question. So I had wanted to be an English professor when I was in junior high, actually. So I love literature. And I would say that when I was in my senior high school, I was thinking, okay, instead of being an English professor, maybe I'll be a philosophy professor or maybe an economist. Right. And then when I was at Berkeley, I did a lot of economics and philosophy courses, both. I guess I could have double major, but I did a major in econ, minor in philosophy. And then actually I would go through cycles of how I felt about economics, philosophy or something else. Right. So actually I took the uh, LSAT. So I was thinking maybe you know, when I was feeling depressed, yeah, maybe I'll just be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think at the time I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll just be an immigration lawyer. And, you know, like, like yeah, academia is you know, too crummy in so many ways. But Actually, I would say that in my junior year of college, I read Richard Posner's Economic Analysis of Law, and that got me re-excited about economics. And I was weighing it and finally said, well, you know, all things considered, economics seems like a better path than philosophy. Mm. And so I did the uh, economics PhD at Princeton. And can, can I, I ask did, you, Brian, how much, yeah. if you remember your thought process, was it like the thing that excited you the most, or was there some practicality like, you know, I could probably you know, get a job if I go into economics? Yeah, it was a bunch of factors. So probably a, a big part of it was my thinking, well, professor, in order to succeed, you have to work on small questions. And I was saying, well, while the big questions of philosophy maybe interest me more than the big questions in economics, but the small questions in economics interest me more than the small questions of philosophy. And then I was also thinking about, I can get a job in economics and I can finish in a, in a shorter amount of time. And then as it turned out, not only did I get a job as an economist, but turns out an economist can do anything he wants, yeah. <laughs> uh, which was never really properly explained to me. But if you look at what I've done, you know, I mean, at this point in my career, I really just work on whatever I want to mm. do. And, and if there's no controlled experiments, no one can say you're wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Although, I mean, given that I think I can just do anything, mm-hmm. I mean, well, I, we can say with confidence it couldn't really have been better as a philosopher. Right. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> because I could have done, you know, like, if you can do anything you want, then yeah, it couldn't, then it's, it, it, it is a praxeological truth at that point, Bob, that... You could have ended up in some backward country doing trolley experiments for real. So, you know, that's, yeah, yeah, we avoided yeah, yeah, that, that, that horrible that, outcome. That could, well, could well be, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. C- can you explain, I don't, because I don't know this part of the story, so how did... Was GMU your first place to teach or did you bounce around? I don't know that part. Oh, no, no. So, yeah, I mean, it was basically the summer before I started at Princeton. I did a summer program in the Institute for Maine Studies here at George Mason, and I met Tyler Cowan, and I made a good impression on him, and we stayed in close contact when I was in grad school. And then when I was coming on the market, he lobbied for me with all his might to get me hired. Mm-hmm. Right. And as a result, I uh, did get hired, and I've been here ever since. So, yeah, I didn't bounce around at all. I really, I, I, I mean, I did just what I advise every young scholar to do, which is if you know you want to do this, then anything other than time in school is a waste of time, right? You know, practical experience, there's no reward for that. So I, I finished at Princeton in four years flat and then 
took the summer off and then started at Mason and I've been here ever since. So I guess I'm uh, right now in my 23rd year. Wow. Okay. So just to elaborate on that advice, you're, you're saying if a young person knows I got to be a college professor, then your point is don't, don't get real world experience working for corporations or whatever, because that's not going to help you and you might as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, it certainly won't help your career. I mean, you might say, well, maybe it'll give you some extra knowledge, possibly, although, I mean, it just seems like there's a more efficient way of learning, which is, you know, you, I mean, better to go and talk to 20 people who have had the practical experience than to do it yourself, is my view. Right. Okay. I, before I leave that, I imagine some listeners would think, yeah, but the problem is all these people in academia, even economists writing about the business world, and they've never worked a day in their life. So what do you say to that kind of? Yeah. Uh, I mean, so if you never worked a day in your life and you have a big ax to grind against business and you don't actually read about what it's really like, that's the problem. Right. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can learn. Mm-hmm. Right? So, uh, you can learn from firsthand experience. You can learn from talking to people. You can learn from reading. And of course, it's very hard to learn anything if you're very emotional about the topic. So I think that's much more a professor's problem is they begin with a lot of negative emotions about business. And then it just makes it harder mm-hmm. for them to learn. Can I ask what your thoughts are? I don't want to ask what you do with your kids in case that's personal, but like, yeah, ask do you away. think of, okay, I mean, do, do you want your kids to like have a summer job or something? Just so, I mean, because for me, like I worked at a grocery store yeah. on this summer, like when I was home from, you know, the school and whatever. And I think that was good. I worked in the cafeteria at school. And I, I think that probably, even though I knew I was going to go into academics, that, that I think helped me, you know, be more quote, well-rounded in, in some sense that I had an idea of, mm-hmm. you know, workers. So yeah, some workers you just know, oh yeah, they're going to be hung over on a Sunday morning, you know, <laughs> don't, don't schedule them to work brunch or whatever. And it, I don't know. I think that might've given me some real world experience that helps right. me. I would when say I it totally, totally depends on the kid. Mm-hmm. So there's some kids who are just so delusional and know-it-alls that you really need to throw them into the real world to see for themselves because they won't believe anything anyone says or anything that they read. They have to see with their own eyes. Mm-hmm. And then there are others where you can simply give them a lecture and they absorb the information. So, and then there's everything on that continuum. Right. So immediately, like, you know, I have four kids. Uh, so, you know, each one of them, well, the first two basically learn in the same way. They're identical twins, but there are three distinct learning styles, one for each genome of my kids. Uh-huh. And I would explain things to each of them in a different way. And so, yeah, I mean, so people who are more irresponsible, I think that also it's better for them to get some firsthand experience so they actually see with their own eyes what's going on. Whereas people who are very sober, you can just tell them how the world is and they're like, oh, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Did, did, I'm sorry, did you say you are you have identical twins? Yeah, yeah, my first two sons are identical Gee, twins. Maybe I knew that and forgot it. Were you tempted, like, oh my gosh, do you know all the social experiments we can do? And did you have to restrain yourself or... No, I didn't have to restrain myself. I, I mean, I had, you know, I have a whole book where I talk about twin research, right. so I knew what it said. Yeah. I didn't, I mean, I mean, the main thing that having these twins actually did in my own life is it just made me really appreciate how relevant the research was because twin research is not really about twins. It's about human nature. Could, could tell us more. That's a very provocative statement. Right. So really what's going on in twin research is they are trying to answer the question of nature versus nurture. Mm -hmm. They're trying to understand why do human beings turn out the way that they are, how much of it is genetics, how much of it is upbringing, how much of it is something else. That third category people tend to forget about, but it's important too. Right. Just the fact that identical twins raised together are not literally identical in any important way. 
height, even height's going to be different by some millimeters. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, so we, we like I knew the research, but having twins, every time I'm looking at them, I say you're the kind of people people study when people want to understand why people turn out the way the people do turn out. Right. Right. And you know, usual result out of this research is that we greatly underestimate nature relative to nurture, especially in the long run. And that you know very much fits my experience with them because. My my older sons, the twins, are so much like each other and so different from every every other person that I know. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, I mean, you really, really can tell. I mean, you know, remember when they were little, people said, oh, they have different personalities. And I would always disappoint them and say, no, not really. Right? Because people love the idea of different personalities for right. identical twins. And right. when you just say, no, it's actually they're very much alike. I'm like, oh. Yeah, I mean, I, w- there were identical twins in my class in, in high school. And in the beginning, it was the kind of thing you couldn't tell them apart. But then, yeah, by sophomore yeah. year... I, you know, and they did have quote different personalities, but now that you're bringing that up, you're right. It's, it just meant I could tell them apart mm-hmm. after a while. You know what I mean? That, that, yeah, they were actually were closer to each other than they were to any other human being walking around. Yes. So, I mean, in, in fairness, part of the problem, I mean, the, the, the best studies in this right are when the twins are separated. Cause in other words, your kids had the same nurture and nature largely. Right. So there's the, there are, you're right. There are two kinds of twin studies. There are, the twins that are separated at birth or when they're very young, and of course, those oh, those studies only have a few hundred kids in each of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there is a much broader class of studies where you're comparing identical twins raised together to fraternal twins raised together. But in terms of the science, you still get a lot of, of mileage out of that mm-hmm. because basically you're seeing if you keep the environmental similarity the same or the family environment's uh, similarity the same, but you increase your degree of genetic relatedness by 50 percentage points, how much more similar do you get? Sure. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, there's a whole, and then there's a whole set of math for backing out. Not only do we measure the effect of nature from that, but then you can do some further math to say how much room is left for nurture to matter. Mm-hmm. And zoom. So, is it, so is it fair? Um, Cause I do want to get to your more recent stuff, but I know like you, you had mm-hmm. a, a whole book on this kind of stuff. Is it fair? fair from what I took you to be saying, you tell me if this is too simple mm-hmm. is parents agonizing over, Oh my gosh, I got to play Bach for my kid and, you know, read mm-hmm. him Rothbard at night or something that don't worry about it. That's, you're not going to screw up your kid, but you're also not going to help them. Is, is that too strong a yeah, statement? Yeah, or? So especially in the long run and for almost all of the outcomes parents care about for reading Rothbard, I would say that's such an unusual thing to do <laughs> that, it actually is you know, probably, you know, let me put this way, it is so far outside of what people study that it's at least we can't rule out that it matters. And actually, there's some other evidence we could talk about saying that things like that are, are the areas where you're most likely to have an influence okay, on your okay, kids. The, the, let me not be cheeky. Let me do something more yeah. realistic, like l- limit screen time. Otherwise, your kid's going to be yeah, able to yeah. about stuff like that, like you know, yeah, conventional yeah. So parenting it, advice. What we can say is that within the range of parenting styles that are studied in the first world, mm-hmm. it's very hard to see that, that it makes much difference what you do. Now, those provisos are important because within the first world, there are some really horrible families that are just not studied. Mm-hmm. And we just don't know like how bad it is to, to grow up there. And then also in the third world, they don't do twin studies. At least I've never come across any. But as I talk about in my new book, there is very good evidence that getting adopted at birth from a third world country and moved to the first world not only physically transforms you and you grow up to be taller and have a bigger head circumference and higher weight and so on, but also mentally transforms you and will will actually make your IQ much higher than it would have been if you had stayed stuck back in the third world or much less than a, in a third world orphanage. 
Okay. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. So why don't we, that's a logical place for us to, to transition. So what is the, the official title of your new book? And, and also, can you explain before we get into the content, it's not a conventional book full of text. Right. So can you explain right. the, all that? Yeah, so, so the new book is called Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. It's co-authored with cartoonist Zach Wiener-Smith. And this is what is called a nonfiction graphic novel. So you know how most documentaries are fiction, or rather, rather most movies are fiction, but some are nonfiction? Right. right. Similarly, most comic books are fiction, but some are nonfiction. Uh, there is a whole genre of nonfiction comics. And what I realized when I started reading them is some of them are excellent. Mm -hmm. Some of them are not only accurate, but insightful and are just a great way to actually convey material memorably. So okay, can I stop you for a second? So is true. the actual, the term, some people might think it's, oh, it's a comic book, but actually it's graphic novel. Is that yes. the preferred term? Well, gra graphic novel is basically a highfalutin comic book, normally longer. Okay. Right. But a comic book with literary, usually you say graphic novels when a comic book has literary aspirations. Okay. Right. Mm -hmm. When you're trying to do something that isn't just aimed at kids right now, that's a little bit unfair on the other side, sure. but still, the, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's the standard way of dividing it up. So, you know, Watchmen is the most famous graphic novel and still is, I mean, continues to be in the top five bestsellers on Amazon hour by hour right. at this point. But there are nonfiction ones. And the, the, the series that influenced me the most, a guy named Larry Gonick has the cartoon history of the universe in five volumes. Mm -hmm. And I read that and I was saying, wow, not only is this all correct for any period that I know well, and therefore probably correct throughout, right. but by combining words and pictures, he was just able to convey a lot more information in a short amount of time in a very memorable way. And this inspired me. And I said, I want to do the same kind of thing for a topic I care about. And immigration is one of the main things that I've been blogging about for many years. So I said, mm -hmm. why don't I do that? And then I can't draw at all. So I made a list of artists that I thought would do a good job for the book. And I was able to get my number one choice, uh, which is uh, Zach Wiener-Smith of, of the webcomic Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial. Oh, oh geez, I didn't put two and two together. Okay. Yeah. If you don't know the name, you uh, you very likely know, have, have seen many of his cartoons because they're among the most shared on Facebook in mm -hmm. the world. Right. And so, so he, he doesn't just do the illustration. Like those are his ideas too like he does both for that comic strip well you know interesting you should ask that so i talked him into doing it mm -hmm. and once i had him say yes i didn't want to impose any further litmus tests so i didn't ask him i deliberately i would just avoid the topic right. of the extent to which he agreed uh but you know i so i knew that he was pro-immigrant in some sense you like, might have uh, misunderstood me i meant the saturday morning breakfast cartoon you're saying he's not just the illustrator he does it's not that there's some guy who dreams up the content for that Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, yes. For 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 his cartoon, he is both writer and artist. Oh, okay, that, that's all I wanted. But, to know. For, but okay. for this book, yeah. I did ninety five percent of the words. He added added some jokes, and mm -hmm. he had some good, good input on how to change the language around a bit. Uh, so you know, it was a genuine collaboration. Because, I mean, so I didn't draw it, but I storyboarded the book. So that means that I used a lot of Google images, and I had some comics editing software to show how I wanted the pages to look. Mm -hmm. And then we would work very closely where he would draw a draft and I would give him detailed comments on how I wanted the draft changed. And then he would do another version. And you know, I, I did micromanage him to sure. a crazy extent, mm -hmm. but that's, you know, I, I just couldn't bear. I mean, I, I mean, I had this great opportunity. I didn't want to let it slip with my fingers being anything less than just the way I wanted it. Sure. Do you, before we dive into the actual content, do you have any thoughts like other academics who are considering and they just assumed, Oh, I'm going to write a book on such and such. Do you have any words of wisdom for if they should consider doing it this way versus a more conventional, just regular book? Right. Yeah. So 
I would say the first thing is, are you willing to put in months of your life to reading a lot of other graphic works to learn the vocabulary, learn the grammar, learn from the masters? So there are some other economists, I won't mention their names, but they have done works like this, but they appear to have read no other graphic works or barely any. And so the layout is amateurish and the visuals are unimaginative or just confusing. And so, you know, other economists, I'm, I'm far from the first economist to do this. There's, and there's maybe three to five other economists who have done this. Mm-hmm. But, you know, step one is don't assume that just because you haven't done it, that you're good at it. <laughs> right. So become right. become become knowledgeable about what you're doing before you do it. You wouldn't go and start writing a book without you know, without having read books before. Right. Similarly, you shouldn't go and do a graphic work without having read a lot of graphic works and doing you know, and actually and again to read them not just as a consumer but to read them through the eyes of a producer and to see why did he do it this way? What's going on here? Uh, there's you know, if you want to get started, there are two fantastic books by a guy named Scott McCloud. One of them is called understanding comics. The other one is called making comics. Mm-hmm. I would recommend these books to almost everyone actually, because they're just so wonderful, but they're, co- they're graphic novels about making comics. Is there, can you think of any lesson that, you know, somebody who's not in this wouldn't realize, but you really, you know, like, so I mean, it, I think it's probably the kind of thing, like I, what I'll do is like, if I, when I go to see a public speaker or like when I, I take cruises now, as you know, and I'll go to like the magicians or whatever the entertainers, and I'm not there to be entertained. I'm there to study them to see, like, yeah, how yeah. do they take control of the room? How do they deal if the crowd's, you know, antsy or whatever? So I, I st- so it, like, yeah, yeah. are there any things like that that you observe? Like, you know, you, we know the average consumer can tell that's a good graphic novel. That one bores me. But you've seen behind yes. it and you figured out what the principle is. I mean, there's so much to say. I would start by going back to George Orwell's Politics in the English Language, where he talked about dead metaphors versus live metaphors and. Mm-hmm. Basically, once a metaphor has been used a hundred times, people don't think about the metaphor anymore. Mm-hmm. So don't do that, he said. And similarly, when you're doing visuals, you always need to be thinking about, is this a stale visual? Is this something that people have seen so many times they no longer think about it anymore? So I put a lot of effort into coming up with visuals that seem fresh, that were not just ones that people have, have heard of a hundred times. So, I mean, that that's a, that's a very big part. Another thing is just... You're getting the expressions on the characters right. So what's nice is that you, you, so you, you know how sometimes on social media you'll need to say sarcasm because right. people won't otherwise get the sarcasm. Yes. Oh, I'm, I'm board, quite familiar actually, with that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can actually draw a sarcastic expression on someone's face uh-huh. if you've got a good enough artist and it's quite recognizable as sarcasm. Uh-huh. Uh, then, there, then there's just things like understanding panel arrangements. So something that is quite subconscious, but once you hear it and look at it, it's very true is that in a graphic work, if you want to indicate a slow passage of time, then you want to have wide horizontal panels. On the other hand, if you want to show time passing quickly, you want to have narrow long panels, narrow vertical panels. And again, this is not obvious, but if you look at actual works, you'll see how it goes. And there's something about the way the human mind thinks about the panel where when you Mm -hmm. make it horizontal then it feels like time is going at a slower pace. And when you make it vertical, it seems like things are going in slow motion, like in an action movie. So that's another one that mm-hmm. matters a lot. Uh, you, know, you know, just things like getting the right balance between the size of the picture and the number of words. Yep. So if you have a very small drawing, you don't want to have a lot of words in that panel because it's too crowded. So sure. very basic stuff like this. 
uh, you know, which is why I actually wrote the book using this comics editing software where I really did lay out visual storyboards in advance. Mm-hmm. Whereas other people will actually just do a totally text-based script. And to me, that was would have just been hard because I wouldn't be able to visualize whether there were too many or too few words on a page, for example. Mm-hmm. So is part, one of the elements of this that you're like the superhero? Well, so I'm the narrator. I, uh-huh. I, I don't put myself into superhero garb. I mean, I think about myself as the narrator of a documentary. Okay. Right? Um, so that's the, way, that's the way I'm doing it. And this is the, the way that most people do it. There are a few that don't, but... At first, I was trying to do it uh, without having me as the narrator, and then other people just said, yeah, well, I know that everybody does it this way, Brian, but everybody does it because it works. So right. people want to have a narrator that they can t- that's talking to them that they identify with, so I changed that, and I think that was a really good call. right? But in terms of why you'd want to do it this way than in other ways, you know, like I said, basically, if you have a lot of information that you actually want the readers to absorb and learn, mm-hmm. I think this works way better because not only does it keep people reading – but it's just a way that it sinks in more when you when you combine words and pictures. The old adage, a picture is worth a thousand words. A well-chosen picture is worth a thousand words. And finally, if you want to influence a broader audience, so all of my regular books, I would say that I write them so that they are enlightening for active researchers specializing in the topic, but also can be enjoyed by anyone who is a professor in my field, by and professors of social science generally, by graduate students and by good undergraduates and people who used to be good undergraduates but now have jobs. Mm-hmm. So, and for my other books, I would say that's the totality of my audience. I just can't, those books, you could try assigning them to mediocre undergraduates, but it just wouldn't take. They're just not written at the right level for them. Uh, on the other hand, for this graphic work, this is the first thing I've ever done where my five-year-old was looking over my shoulder when I was working on it and was curious and actually read a lot of it. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't, and I will say, like, you know, of course, the author's going to say this. I did not dumb this down, right? right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have endnotes where I give a lot more details, but I consider the things that I'm saying to be strictly correct, not just hiding behind the fact. Well, it's a comic book; I can say whatever I want. Right, I got you. So mm-hmm. I tried to make it fact checked in the same way that we're you know, really sentence by sentence truth checked in the same way that I would for any other book, right? And you know, several times my publisher was telling me, oh, you're like, you're being too moderate here. Or you're giving too much ground. And I said, yes, I know, because what I'm saying is true. And the thing you want me to say isn't true. So I'm not going to uh-huh. say that. Right. Okay. Um, yeah, that actually was what I was going to ask you is, did you ever find yourself constrained by this format? Like, oh, gee, if I were doing a conventional book, I would be able to get into this subtlety. But here, I just, I, it's too much. Right. So I did not feel constrained at all. In fact, I would say I felt less constrained for this book than for anything else that I've ever done because I had zero writer's block in this book. Mm-hmm. I had no trouble banging out eight or 10 good pages a day. Whereas for my other books, sometimes I've struggled to get a paragraph out in a day. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot easier this way. I mean, partly because you're multitasking. So if you're stuck on the words, then you try to get a better visual. If you don't like the visual, then you go back to the words or you shop around for other visuals or you just brainstorm so it was just a lot easier to have this feeling of flow where I was continuously working on the book and always making progress. Uh, so yeah, and then, but in terms of scientific accuracy, that's where I had a very extensive set of endnotes. So I'm not sure that it is the largest set of endnotes in any graphic work, but it's definitely in the running. Okay. So moving on then to the actual content. So in the book, it's not 
merely that you make the case for expanding immigration by 6.8%. Like you go, you swing for the fences. Yeah, that's right. So I, I begin with this libertarian presumption of why shouldn't people be able to live and work in any country where they want? They're taking a job from a willing employer. They're renting a place from a willing landlord. Mm-hmm. This is not equivalent to someone moving to your house and freeloading. This is rather just saying there's a free market where people can participate, you know, whether or not they've got the right papers from the government. Uh, so the, there's a big inspiration was this essay by Michael Humer called Is There a Right to Immigrate? And actually, he's a character in the book explaining his arguments. And so I do start there and just say, not that open borders is axiomatically required. So uh, your readers are probably familiar with the non-aggression axiom, yeah. right? Um, Michael Humer pushes what I call a non-aggression presumption, saying, look, it's not that it's impossible for it to be the right thing to do to initiate force against someone, but there really ought to be a very strong reason established with a high degree of certainty. And that's the take that I have on this book as well as policy in general. So start with this libertarian presumption of explain to me why – Freedom is the wrong choice, mm-hmm. right? And then I've, and after I go through that, then I spend four chapters going over all of the main complaints about immigration and saying a lot of them are just totally wrong or the, uh, the reverse of the truth. And then others, I say, look, there's maybe something to them, but the complaints aren't nearly enough to justify anything like what government does. Okay, so I think I can do the most benefit here by being, let's call it devil's advocate, um, Feel free. Uh, so one thing, and I've said this to you before, but just for to, uh, completeness sake, my main concern with you and your advocacy of quote open borders is I don't think that's actually your first best position, right? That in a totally free society, each piece of property would be owned by one or more people and they could set whatever rules they wanted for who comes out of the land or not. Is is that a true statement? Yeah, sure. So in you know, that world, I, I wouldn't, think that was called that was called open borders per se unless open borders just means no political institution gets to yeah. affect you have the a flow problem with the phrase free trade bob do i have a problem with the phrase free trade it's the same idea right so it's not like under anarcho-capitalism you can open up a store in my house mm-hmm. right you can't do you can't do an export import bank or an export import firm inside of the mall that i own without my permission but still i think free trade is a very useful slogan and it and it means you know, when people hear it when they complain, they're complaining almost always for the right reasons. Namely, they don't like the idea, right? And similarly with open borders, I would say almost everyone who complains about it, they have in their minds what I'm talking about. They just don't agree with it. So I do have a general policy of not trying to change words unless they're really confusing. And oh, I don't. And I, th- you know, I okay, think. Okay. Yeah. So let me yet. let me just paraphrase. So you're saying it would be right, Bob, if if there were a whole bunch of anarcho-capitalists out there who are totally with me, Brian Kaplan, on the fact that the government shouldn't be regulating immigration and they just don't like the phrase open borders and that's a turnoff because to them they're like, well, no, we should have private yeah. property to have private borders, not open yeah. borders. You're saying yeah, that's sure. not the issue, that 99.9% yeah. yeah. of the people who object to what you're writing about, it's because they want the government to do things yeah. you actively think are wrong. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, and yeah, so, you know, so whenever I talk, I'm not trying to talk to people who already agree with me. I'm trying to talk to reasonable people who don't agree with me. Mm-hmm. And... Yes, you can try to win on terminology, and I have several friends who do, but to me, it's just not convincing and not effective. Um, I don't have any good empirics on whether that's true. Um, It's true, of course, that there are a lot of people who do try to force people to change the words they use in the hopes this will change their minds, 
Um, if it works, I just consider it a cheap victory, and I don't want to take that that way out. I'd rather just start. I mean, to me, first of all, make sure people understand what I'm talking about, and if the words they're already using convey the idea that I want to convey, then I don't want to change the words because it's just an extra hurdle. Because you know, I mean, I'd rather just get to the substance than have to say, well, technically, this isn't the right phrase. We need to start using a totally different phrase from what you're familiar with. And then by the time that we've even got to square one, I've already got them confused. So, I mean, you know, to me, language is all just about clarity. And, you know, so, I mean, like years ago, I'm like, I think in an ideal world, we, you and I would use the word socialism very happily. And the, 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 the battle would be between socialism and statism. And so socialism says that, it, like, you know, we should have a free society and like we should do what is best for society. And statism would be, no, the state should run things. However, I would consider it a fool's errand to try to take the word socialism over at this point, mm. even though it is a rather cheesy move to say, well, my view says that society is important, and then everyone who disagrees with me doesn't right. think society is important. But given that the word's out there, it's widely used, people know what it means, I just think it would be a big waste of my time and just of the goodwill of my audience to try to get them to use the word in a different way or, or adopt a new term. Mm -hmm. Okay, let, let me just try one more on this. I, I'm not even saying you're wrong, but let me just try one more because I, yeah, I agree with you with socialism. That would be silly to, to try to reclaim that word and to yeah. say, you know, or, or Mark, capital Marx Like, like yeah. I don't favor a system that's good for capital specifically, but it's right, the word right. we have. I mean, mm -hmm. you probably, you probably know some left libertarians who say I'm a free market anti-capitalist. Well, right. For you now you've completely confused almost everyone on earth. And, right. I, and you're I never you. going to undo it. Yeah. So you know, right. this is a but, hopeless battle. But that, but oh. that's kind of where I'm coming from is I'm saying, I think the average American, at least I can't speak to foreign listeners. I think the average American, when they hear open borders, what they think that means is that if the entire population of Mexico wanted to come camp out on my street and be on the sidewalk looking at my house, they could do so. And that kind of freaks them out. They think that's weird. And so, and I'm point like, no, in, the, in your ideal world, that wouldn't be the case. Like whoever owned the street could say, yeah, you can't have a million people just camped out right here. That's going to interfere with the flow of traffic. And, you know, my customers, the residents who are paying for access to this, the roadway don't want a thousand people just camped out in front of their house looking at them. Yeah, so, I would say that uh, if yours about foreigners coming and camping out on the street is probably down at like 40th on the list of complaints for most people. It's, you know, like the main complaints that people have about immigrants are they're taking our jobs slash reducing wages, they're freeloading on the welfare state, they're messing up our culture, and they're going to vote the wrong way. So that's why I have four chapters on those four complaints. The one that you're talking about, I can see someone eventually retreating to it after everything else, but I've talked to a lot of people who disagree with me from many different perspectives, and it's only libertarians who ever say what you're saying. So I'm, I, I just don't think that's the audience that I should be worrying about, especially because I think that libertarians also know very well what I'm saying generally. It's just that like, like, many of us are sticklers, Bob, right? Mm -hmm. We've got a certain formulation that we like. And on the one hand, it's commendable to say, look, let's be very precise. But on the other hand, when you're trying to communicate in a finite amount of time, I say that if, you know, if it is very widely understood what you mean, just use the words. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Right, so, because, especially considering that there's so many people who have attacked the allegedly open borders policies of the last 40 or 50 years. This is very common. And right, yeah. when you say, like, what are you talking about? And, and it comes down to, well, like you've allowed in a whole lot of immigrants. It's not that they're sleeping on the streets or anything like that. Basically, 
they are people who are so opposed to immigration that even letting in a few is tantamount in their minds to letting in everybody. Yeah, fair enough that some people use open borders in in the, I mean, it's sort of like, I think libertarians are guilty of this too, where in certain argument, like why is the U.S. richer than North Korea? Oh, it's because of the free market, baby. And then how come healthcare is screwed up? Well, because we don't have a free market, yeah. you know, and it's kind of like depending on the argument, we either have, you know, free right. market capitalism well, I mean, or not. I think it's a very good story for why we're richer than North Korea. <laughs> right. But you get what I'm, I'm yeah, saying yeah, yeah, that sure, like sure. it's you can see how it looks like they're they're switching the definition of what's a free market based on, you know, what makes their argument yeah. go through. Yeah. OK, so let's move on then again. I'm just doing this for the sake of completeness because I know what the obvious objections are going to be. What about then the, the claim that. Okay, yeah, Brian, you're right. If we did have, you know, let's even say a night watchman state, fair enough. People come in, you know, if an employer wants to hire them, but come on, that's not the situation right now. There are plenty of people that come here and they get on welfare or whatever, or they're going to vote too. That's the issue. Like if we could be sure future elections would always be libertarian-ish, okay, but isn't it kind of naive to let all these people come in, many of whom we know are going to vote for the Democrats in the next cycle? Right. So there's two things. I mean, first of all, there's the principal point of how far are you willing to take this idea? So most obviously, does this mean that it would be okay to forbid people that are likely to have kids on welfare from having children? Does it, you know, does it so, or of course, people that are likely to vote the wrong way, would it then be justified to tell native-born citizens that they can't have children because our statistical estimates say that your kids are going to be a fiscal burden and vote the wrong way? Uh, so very few people will actually bite that bullet. I mean, part of it is just that it's horrible, but another part of it is, well, all right, maybe even if that's true, the harm is actually failing you know, very little compared to this egregious affront to human liberty. Mm-hmm. And then, and furthermore, of course, it's a collective punishment where it's not like you're doing it only to the people where it's actually true, but instead you're doing it to a whole class of innocent people. So that's the, that's the principled argument. And you know, if you look to the book, I do have some time where I'm arguing Milton Friedman about this. But to me, the I mean, much more fruitful than arguing about philosophy is just to say, all right, well, let's go and look at the real world and see, first of all, if you're right about the problem, and second of all, how serious it is. And that's mostly most of what they do in those chapters. Mm-hmm. So in the case of the fiscal effects of immigration, this is where I say, well, there's a whole lot of research that's been done trying to estimate these effects, right? And obviously, you don't want to just go and find the people that say or saying what you want them to say. You want to right. do a fair-minded review of the literature and especially focus on the boring quants who don't have any particular concern for what we're doing, who just want to look at the numbers. And so I rely very heavily on this recent National Academy of Sciences uh, set of estimates for the net fiscal effects of immigration. And just to understand what this means, so basically what we're doing is you're looking at an estimate of the the present value of all the taxes the immigrant's going to pay minus the cost of all the services they're going to consume. And then you also want to factor in multiple generations because – on the one hand, an immigrant comes here and they have an American kid. That gets counted as a native, but it still ultimately does cause an increase in government spending. But on the other hand, that kid grows up and starts paying taxes too, so you want to factor that in. right? So anyway, when you do this, the punchline is that not only is the typical immigrant to the U.S. right now a net fiscal benefit for the U.S. Treasury, but furthermore, even low-skilled immigrants today are a good deal, given the welfare state, unless they're old. So basically, you know, even young, unskilled immigrants are net fiscal positive uh, for a bunch of reasons. So one of them is that a lot of government services are what we economists call non-rival, where the cost doesn't depend on population. 
right? So whatever your views on national defense, and we probably won't get to that today, Bob, but whatever your views on that are, if we had a new baby boom, it's safe to say that you wouldn't say, well, now that we've had a big baby boom, we need more nukes, Mm -hmm. right? Because you can defend a whole bunch of new babies just as well with the existing arsenal. So that would be an example of a non-rival good. A lot of government products are like that. And so that means that an immigrant can pay a lot less than the average in taxes and still be a net positive for the treasury in the same way that movie theaters make money with discount tickets to the matinee, mm-hmm. right? It's not, you know, you know, cheap tickets to the matinee, this is not welfare for people who go to matinees. This is a wise business decision on the part of the theaters who realize, look, we've already built the theater. We got the chairs that cost next to nothing to keep, to keep the theater open. So let's let in a few people for five bucks and at least we'll make five bucks a person. And it's the mm-hmm. same thing with a lot of the government budget, where you can let in a person who actually pays a lot less than normal, and yet they still wind up paying more than their marginal cost. Then another big issue, which every libertarian should know about, but most don't, I think, is that the U.S. welfare state, and in fact, all welfare states in which I'm aware, focus their money on the old, not the poor. Mm-hmm. And immigrants tend to be young. So this is another factor that tips the scales in favor of immigrants. And you say, well, eventually they'll be old. Yes, but in, fi- in terms of fiscal planning, someone that's going to cost you money in 40 years is not a, not nearly as big a deal as someone who's going to cost you money now, right? Because of right. interest, right? right. Present discounted value, right? And then finally, the, you know, another crucial point is that uh, you know, probably actually the biggest expense that a person in the U.S. has to use taxpayers is for their education. And when you let an adult immigrant, you save the cost to use taxpayers of paying for that education. Right. And yes, U.S. taxpayers do it to pay for their kids still. But if you look at a family of three natives, U.S. taxpayers paid for three educations. If you look at a family of two immigrants and their child was born here, well, U.S. taxpayers are only paying for one education. So, again, when you put all that together, you come out with some quite favorable numbers. Then uh, on the question of immigrants voting the wrong way. uh, So the main thing here is true is that today immigrants are very heavily Democratic in the U.S., Mm -hmm. It was not true 30 years ago. Reagan did about as well with immigrants as Mondale did, and I think as as well as as Carter did. So it's not an inherent fact immigrants, nor is it because we were getting more white immigrants back then, because white immigrants today are actually heavily heavily democratic. So to me, when you realize this is not any kind of long-term pattern, then it makes a lot more sense to say maybe it's not that the immigrants are changed or the immigrants are inherently democratic, but rather that the Republican Party has made them feel unwelcome. So if you look at Reagan's statements about immigration as well as his policies, he would be considered a very pro-immigration guy at, uh, at this stage in U.S. history. Uh, so you know, my view is that this is mostly just bad marketing. And again, you can see this with Indian Americans, not American Indians, but immigrants from India, where mm-hmm. by most measures, they are the most socially conservative group in America. They're also now the richest ethnicity in the United States. And yet they're 80% Democratic. So why aren't they Republicans, right? And I think the uh, there's only one answer that makes much sense, which is Republicans don't make them feel welcome, right? They don't feel appreciated by Republicans. So that's my story there. Now, but I say anyway, the bigger question, unless you're a politician, it doesn't really matter which party they vote for. It matters what their policy views are because parties adjust their adjust the policies they're offering in order to cater to voters, Right? So you can see the difference between a Massachusetts Republican and a, a Texas Republican, or right. between a Massachusetts Democrat and a Texas Democrat. When a Democrat knows that they are trying to win over the 
affections of a conservative audience, they have much more conservative views. When a Republican knows they're trying to get to win in a liberal state, they have much more liberal views. So that's where I say that we should that's what we should focus on. And so the strange thing there is that there's actually very little empirical work done on this. A lot of people accuse immigrants of being horribly statist, but rarely do they actually look at the data. So I do look at the data, and what I come with is saying immigrants are slightly more statist than native-born Americans. They're slightly more socially conservative. They're slightly more economically liberal. Uh, it, there's a difference. But again, it's, you know, it is a marginal one. It's not like the typical native is not an anarcho-capitalist, nor is the typical foreigner a Stalinist. Instead, we're talking about, say, the typical immigrant being at somewhere between the 40 and 45th percentile of libertarianism relative to the native population, uh, with the key exception of immigration itself, where foreigners are more are more pro-immigration or less anti is the right word, because almost every group is anti-immigration. So you're saying even if you pull first-generation immigrants? Yes. There, what what do you mean by the saying anti? I mean, just that they're not open borders, no, or they're know, saying so, you know, the U.S. lets so, in too many immigrants. Listen, last right time now. I looked at data, I would say that if you go and pull foreign-born adults in the U.S., most will say we should not increase immigration. Okay. So if you give them the option, should immigration be increased, stay the same, or reduced, then you are not going to get a majority of foreign-born saying increase. In, huh? That, that's oh, that's interesting. Okay. So now natives would be even more opposed to increasing, but. Right. Nevertheless, so they, you know, but you know, it's again, it's a marginal difference. It's not this night and day difference that people want to posit. Okay, and then the last big one, which I don't think you've addressed here, is you know the issue of oh, they're going to lower native-born wages. Mm -hmm. Right. So the economics of immigration is basically the same as the economics of trade, mm -hmm. and the economics of trade, as you know, is basically the same as the economics of technology. Right? Because trade really is just another kind of technology. There's this great story that Steve Landsberg popularized about the Iowa car crop, where he said, imagine that there's a scientist who said, I have a way to turn corn into cars. And everyone laughs at him, but he goes and he builds a factory, and lo and behold, corn goes in, cars come out. He's mastered transmutation, right? And then finally a journalist sneaks in and finds out there's no machines, and they're just docks. All he's doing is importing cars from Japan and exporting corn. So therefore, corn into cars a fraud, and they you know, put him in jail for mm -hmm. violating trade laws. And the whole point of this allegory is that he did have a machine for turning corn into cars. It's called trade. And if you see something wrong with saying, well, well, well technology is impoverishing us, right? As virtually every thinking person will do, unless unless it's whatever happened yesterday, then it's that terrible. But Right. You know, ask people, so has technology been good for us or bad for us over time? Almost every thinking person says, well, yeah, good. Well, but doesn't it destroy jobs? Yeah, often, but then we do something else with the labor that's freed up. And that's true for technology, it's true for trade, and it's true for immigration. Right Now, what's particularly interesting is that when you take a look at immigration through this lens of trade, what you realize is that Right now, the trade barriers to immigration are vastly greater than for virtually any other product. Furthermore, this is a very important product, right? So labor earns roughly 70% of global income. So when you put this all together, you realize these aren't just any old trade barriers. These are extremely strict trade barriers for an extremely important good. And that's why when economists have estimated how much economic harm has been done to the world by migration restrictions, a usual estimate says that Immigration restrictions have depressed global GDP by about 50%. We could be twice as rich as we are now if anyone could take a job anywhere. 
And again, it's just the logic of you're trapping human talent in backwaters where it's not able to realize its potential. So I think you know, Can I stop you for a second? Oh, sure. So specifically, that argument is saying if all the governments of the world got rid of their restrictions on the flow of yes, yes. human labor, mm-hmm. the global GDP would double. Yes. Right, right. So it's not just the trivial argument that more population means more GDP. That's obvious. Rather, right. it is the subtle argument of saying the world as a whole would be richer without these trade barriers. Right. So, of course, I mean, I know you know this, but just to make sure yeah, the yeah. listener is not thinking where you're pulling a fast one. So, of course, the claim, though, is, well, wait a minute. We're not denying that letting a bunch of people from India and Africa come into the U.S. and work in our factories is going to help them a lot. Duh. Yeah. What we're saying, though, is that's going to make U.S. workers poor. So the fact that per capita earthling GDP doubles doesn't prove that. Right, right. High school level skilled American workers, their real wages are going to be up the year after you let in a billion people from the third world. That's what the that's what they're going to say. Right. So, of course, the key thing here is the same for technology. You say, I mean, so if you let if there's a big increase in in, uh, in technology, then like how is that going to be good for people here? Won't won't we suffer from that? Be sure, technology may be good for mankind overall, but how is it good for us? And yet, if you look around and you see, wow, where would we be without our technology? And again, it's just, it really is the same idea with immigration. Now, if the question is, will we all gain? The answer is, of course not, because every kind of progress hurts someone. You know, Uber is hurting, has hurt a bunch of people. Driverless cars are going to hurt a bunch of people. The fa- you know, factories hurt a lot of mm-hmm. people. But I, mean, I say you know, like the, the number one principle of economics is this. The secret of mass consumption is mass production. You should always focus on the overall effect on production whenever you're trying to understand whether something is economically desirable or not. And then the question of, yeah, but what about the distribution? And there the answer is that when you have a large increase in the supply of just one good, then there are likely to be some big losers in that exact area. But when there is a big across-the-board increase in production, then we can know with great confidence that almost everyone will gain. Not everyone, because mm-hmm. that's too hard, but the Industrial Revolution did not mainly benefit factory owners. It benefited almost all of mankind. Vaccines didn't primarily benefit people who produce vaccines. Benefited almost all of mankind. Same thing with the computer, with the internet. Whenever you have a large increase in production, then the gains are widely shared. So, now not true that it's just going to be good for the immigrants because when they come here, they produce a lot more stuff, and those goods will be consumed by us. Okay. Yeah. So, and this is the part where it's it sometimes seems that the pro massive increase in immigration people are a bit glib. And so I just want to have you, what you just said touches on it, but just to make it more specific. So like, let's go back to that trade example. The typical way a free trader deals with that, like a, a specific thing, like, oh yeah, the Iowa car crop or whatever is they'll say, yeah, to allow, like if right now there's limits on trading and importing cars from Japan and exporting wheat, and we got rid of that barrier, it's true that would hurt Detroit automakers mm-hmm. and the wages of people who work for Ford or whatever might go down, but the benefits to American car buyers vastly mm-hmm. exceed that in the aggregate. Right. So that's why it makes sense. So it's it, it's it's interesting. It seems like that's the standard way economists deal with it. And they always say, mm-hmm. we're not saying there wouldn't be losers. I mean, otherwise, why would anyone, is anyone lobbying for tariffs, right? So there are losers. Mm-hmm. We're just saying the gains to the winners outweigh the losses to the losers, mm-hmm when you get rid of specific yeah. trade barriers, yes. but yet I don't ever hear pro immigrant people saying, Oh yeah, sure. We let in unskilled workers, people with a high school diploma, your wages are going to go down, but tough. The rest of us 
are, you know, people with advanced degrees and who own land, we're going to do much better. And the, the gains to us outweigh the losses to you. You, you know, don't tread on me. I never hear anyone say that. They always say, right. no, everyone's going to be richer. So, yeah, so, so do you see how it looks like it's not matching up with the free trade rhetoric? Right. Well, I mean, I would say actually probably both free trade and open borders people tend to downplay the, the losers. Mm-hmm. And to some degree uh, with, with justification, because if you're talking about a big policy change, then it's this is more like you get rid of tariffs on 100 different industries simultaneously. Okay, yeah. And then mm-hmm. even if you are in an industry that's adversely affected, you've got 90, 99 other things that are now cheaper, right? And you know that's why I bring up the, the this idea that large, you know, big, broad increases in production are almost always broadly beneficial. It's not just that it's a loss to a few people, but a greater gain to others, but rather almost mm-hmm. everyone gains. Although, you, you know, if you think about it, you can always find someone who loses, like someone who is just a, a, little, a little bit short of retirement in the auto industry, and then he loses his pension because the firm goes out of business and he didn't plan. Mm-hmm. So, or I often just say, yeah, what about someone who's going to die next week? How does it help him? Yeah, well, I suppose he's going to die next week, and he's uh, was going to leave a lot of auto stock to his kids, say. Right. And, okay. and then he doesn't mm-hmm. live long enough, and you know, or you know, so you know, you can come up with more specific cases. Okay, so let me yes. just paraphrase yes. and amplify. It. So you're saying, and, and this is how I used to teach it too, that to try to make sure the students in the classroom didn't think I was pulling a fast one, I would concede, yeah, if it were just a tariff on Japanese cars, mm-hmm. and we got rid of that there would be identifiable losers and yeah, yeah. yeah they might have to move out of Michigan For and go sure. find mm-hmm. So they could be genuinely harmed. But if it's a more, a, a broad based policy of free trade that, yeah, their wages measured in dollar term, they're going to be, might mm-hmm. be lower, but now, yeah, like you said, the 99 other things that are, so mm-hmm. they're the consumer of the 99 other industries mm-hmm. where yeah, we yeah. also liberalize trade. So they benefit in their capacity as consumers for those yes. other ones. So yes, getting rid of just one particular trade restriction might, have identifiable, but the more it's a broad-based policy, the more likely you're going to, the benefits to you are going to swamp the downside. So you're saying, likewise, if we just allowed barbers from Guatemala, then, and they could only come into Miami, then yeah, the existing barbers in Miami might be hurt, but that's not what you're talking about. Right, right. And of course, you know, so you're born in the U.S., right? Right, Bob? Yeah. Yeah. So you and I have actually, as I point out in the book, greatly suffered from all the foreign competition in academia because- this, we are actually are in one of the very few nearly open borders industries or occupations where mm-hmm. almost any you know, if you know, like to get a you know, almost anyone with a PhD who works as a researcher can get hired by any research university in the U.S. So this has been bad for us personally, but you know it's not clear why the world should revolve around us. Uh, or I don't know, should it, Bob? What do you think? Well, probably not. But that's yeah. why when uh, I became an Austrian economist, yeah. so that's you know there's very little competition there. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, how about uh, is there before we move on here, is there any, like, what's the one factoid or, you know what, on this issue though, because this is what's fascinating to me is they do have some pretty, I mean, it's not a controlled experiment, but it's like that, the, was it the Mariel boat lift yeah. or mm-hmm. something? So there, I mean, it does look like you would have thought clearly we're going to see a huge impact on wages there. And it it's remarkably Small, yes. Like, yeah, you right, had those, right, like, are you able to summarize that off the, off the top of your head, or am I springing yeah. on you? Yeah. So, I think around 1980, maybe it was exactly 1980. Fidel Castro went and said, "You know, fine. You say we're human rights abusers. Uh, you know, okay, we're gonna have a little while where anyone who wants to leave Cuba can go. And and by the way, I'm gonna open up all the jails and send them to. He didn't quite say mm-hmm. that, but that was something that happened. But anyway, this was called the Muriel boat lift. So there was a very large increase in the Cuban population in Miami just over the course of 
few weeks, maybe months. And then my you know, PhD first semester micro teacher, David Card, went and did a paper on this with, I think, it, I remember if it was, I think, he, I think he did it with Kruger, but anyway, definitely David Card, and came away and said, it looks like if we just do some standard statistical methods, we don't see any effect of this large influx on wages. Uh, that study subsequently got criticized by George Borjas, who said, if you go in a little differently, then you get a different result. And then his criticism was criticized. Ultimately, I think that the original study was solid. Although the important thing is that this is just one study out of over 100 studies that get very similar results, mm-hmm. right? Saying that it looks like you know, labor demand is actually what we call highly elastic, so that you can have a very large increase in the number of workers with very little reduction in the wage. And again, if you're remembering that with the bigger picture, the workers then are supplying goods to other people, then you see how the you know, it is actually increasing their wages. And by the way, you know, like the argument of, well, we don't really need open borders because we can just have free trade instead. This is something this sounds smart, but it's actually totally asinine because 80% of, of US GDP is services. Mm-hmm. So when you only have free trade in goods, you only have trade in 20% of stuff. And you can't go and mow my lawn for Mexico. You can't take care of my goods from Mexico or do elder care from Mexico, or work in a restaurant for Mexico. So to say that we'll just have free trade in goods and, and we don't, there's no need for free trade in labor is just shows that you're completely oblivious to the actual sectors of the modern economy. Okay. Well, one thing I, sorry, I did want to ask you the, this fiscal studies, mm-hmm. I very briefly when it, and I see like when you post you know, an open borders thing on econ log or whatever, typically there's someone in there who's going to say you're totally wrong, Brian, and they'll link to some study that seems to show this huge burden of immigration. Mm-hmm. So I'm just, and, and usually like, not that I'm an expert on this, but I, you know, I would do enough to read the abstract. And a lot of times it looked like to me, and I'm just wondering if this is what your take was. It's not that the authors of these studies that seem to come up with different conclusions are lying. It's that they're measuring different things and you kind of got to sit back and say, well, wait a minute, is that actually a good metric of what we're trying to identify here? That's one of the problems. Another problem is usually people who have a pessimistic estimate assume that all government services are rival. Okay. So they just say, look, every person, you know, so like if, if uh, we, you know, if population goes up 1%, then we automatically spend 1% more on everything government does. Right. So which just seems really wrongheaded. So okay, they, so they're saying immigrants aren't pulling their fair share or pulling their weight because well, they're not well, paying we enough. Well, more along the lines of they just assume that there is no such thing as a government service where the cost doesn't depend on population or doesn't depend on it very much. Right. So there's that. Uh, so, you know, the, you know, there are a lot of other uh, ways that you can, the things you can do in order to skew the numbers. I mean, I think a, a lot of times, though, what's going on is just that these are advocacy numbers. And, of course, aren't there advocacy numbers on the other side, too? Yeah, there are. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why I tried to avoid all those and focus on research done by boring quant types and, you know, and you know, while acknowledging, yes, there's a range of estimates, but the ones where the people that you would trust on a very dull quantitative matter, this is what they say. Sure. That's what I built, built the, the result of the book on. Okay. Let's take a break from my discussion with Brian Kaplan to remind you good folks that if you haven't already gotten a copy, I really think you'd like my book about Krugman. What it is, it's a collection of all of the anti-Krugman essays I've written over the years. So to be clear, it's not a bunch of transcripts from the Contra Krugman podcast. These are essays that I wrote in various places too. So if you think, oh yeah, I follow Mises.org. Well, there were a lot of outlets that I wrote for that you probably didn't see. So this is your one-stop shop for all of my rebuttals to Krugman's positions. And it's on a wide variety of topics too, right? So it's not just about Trump, thank goodness. 
It's about all kinds of stuff. And this goes back years, even before Trump was president. This was back when the very idea would have been inconceivable. Talk about stimulus spending, talk about carbon taxes, talk about government debt, all kinds of stuff's in here. To check out the book, go to ContraKrugmanBook.com. So I know we're getting low on time here, so I'd like to move on. Sure, of sure. course, a lot of my listeners, they were eager for us to talk about. You've got this provocative, perhaps infamous in certain circles essay on why I'm not an Austrian economist. Mm -hmm. So can you, can you just give us the backstory of that? And I know you said you, you went to the Mises. So at one point, were you an enthusiastic Austrian? Oh, yeah. And then, was an and then you were uh, a Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So yes. what, what happened? Yeah, so, you know, so I learned Misesian economics before I knew anything about regular economics. Okay. I guess that I actually, you know, really what was going on is that I learned like 1960s, 1960s Keynesianism alongside Austrian economics uh, in my senior year of high school. So mm -hmm. I did do the uh, AP micro macro tests on my own. So for that, I just found an old textbook and found out what I was supposed to say on those tests, mm -hmm. uh, but also learned Misesian economics. And at the time, you know, so, you know, like you may you probably remember that Rothbard has a big discussion what's wrong with Keynesianism, and then there's uh, Henry Hazlitt's failure of the new economics. Sure. Uh, so I read those. So I was sort of inoculated against the kinds of economic, the mainstream economics that I did read when I was in my senior year. Mm -hmm. uh, then when I was an undergraduate at Berkeley, I would say I spent the first three semesters or so being a very staunch Austrian, and while I was taking regular classes, just spent the time saying they're wrong about this and wrong about that, and don't they really understand the contradictions? And then over time, uh, there's started being a few points where I'm saying, okay, well, maybe the Austrians are wrong about this particular point. And okay, maybe they're wrong about another point, another point, or maybe they've said something that's not quite right. Or maybe they are acting as if they're the only people in the, in the world of economics that think this, and actually it's a common view. So I just learned a lot more like, like, like mainstream economics while continuing to read a lot of Austrian, especially Misesian work. And then... Uh, by the time I was in grad school, I was much more eclectic and was not, I was, it was def, definitely would not have thought of myself as an Austrian, you know, maybe like Austrian fellow traveler. Mm -hmm. And then I would say that I became less of a fellow traveler over time and just got more interested in empirical work, which, you know, eventually I decided is really the only way that you can learn very much about economics. And then when I was in the, see, I believe it was the summer before I started my job as a professor. I think I had finished uh, with my PhD. I defended my dissertation, and then I decided to go and do this essay on why I'm not an Austrian economist. And you know, if you say, so what is the gist of it? See, the, you know, the main gist of it is just there's 50 different points where Austrians have controversial views, and I think they're wrong on those 50 points. So it's not. <laughs> but if there were some big picture, it would come down to the Rothbardian demonstrated preference standard, where the only way that you can ever know that someone has a preference is by expressing it in action. Mm -hmm. That is not all, not just wrong, but when you really think about it, it's just crazy. He does use that as a methodological battering ram to destroy most of modern economics. And if that is your starting point, he's right. Because for example, for externalities, you know, say, look, I don't like being uh, the smoke being put on me. Well, what are you doing about it? Nothing. Right. So this is just verbiage. You, know, you have not mm -hmm. demonstrated that you actually don't want this through an action. And therefore it is at best, an unscientific claim, or maybe it's meaningless or possibly wrong. So the few different variations on exactly what the status of you are putting externalities on me would be. But Rothbardians do have a whole intellectual apparatus for dismissing all these complaints out of hand. 
But I would just say that you know, there's something really odd about it to say, well, look, so I can't have a preference in some scientific sense unless I express it in action. That just seems incorrect. It also proves too much because, as I point out in the essay, this also does seem to mean that you can't have a demand curve for things because all, all you ever express with action is that you bought a certain quantity at a certain price. But we don't – actually, there's no action, there's no time where you show what you would have done if the price was different. So then to say mm-hmm. there's some kind of methodological problem with talking about that kind of seems bizarre and dogmatic to me. And especially since uh, Austrians have often emphasized that they do believe in introspection and they care about introspection – like when Rothbard wrote the introduction to Mises' theory in history, he was saying, look, well, you know, Austrians go and use introspection and try to understand what people's goals are, whereas mainstream economists are just looking at observable behavior. And I say, you know, that's not, that, not entirely fair, but in any case, I think that you should do what you say that you should do, namely take introspection very seriously and try to understand what's actually going on inside of other people's heads. So I am bigger on psychology and economics than almost anyone I know, right? I mean, I would say, actually, I'm probably bigger on the importance of economists studying psychology than even the people like Kahneman who have won Nobel Prizes for their work in economics and psychology, because there are many areas of psychology that Kahneman doesn't talk about, like personality psychology. And I think that these are highly relevant to understanding society and understanding economics. So on that, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. So for the benefit of the listener who hasn't read it or it's been a while, Rothbard has a line of argumentation where he says, you know, there's these alleged negative externalities from voluntary market transactions where, you know, somebody's. Uh, you're being sure to defend, you're being sure to defend them or your Nazi flag. Yeah. Well, Nazi I'm trying to think of a, a more. Uh, I don't know. Climate change seems too provocative, but like you, I'm buying a TV set from a factory owner and the factory is putting smoke into the air. Yeah. And so mainstream economics is, oh, there needs to be a Pogovian tax on that to correct for the negative externality. And Robert's saying, well, this is kind of unscientific talk because really all we can know about people's preferences are what they demonstrate in action. Yeah. And, yeah. He says and people so might complain is, about the smoke, but that's just talk. They didn't do anything. Right. Like, whereas or, when you, or, really when you the, buy something, you're doing something. Then you, yeah, you, so, you hand me money, you hand, uh, hand mm-hmm. me a thing. Although, so, I mean, as I pointed out in some of my critique, I mean, even signing your signature on a contract you could say, well, man, like, who says that I'm actually agreeing to anything? Maybe this I'm just practicing my penmanship, and then society deems that I've sold you my house. All I wanted to do was to put my name on a piece of paper, right. and then suddenly you claim that I've done something. So when you really actually apply the standard strictly, you realize that nothing actually meets the standard. And you could just say, well, so too bad for reality. We just don't know anything. But to me, this is just a very crazy methodological rule that they made up, but I don't see why we should believe it. Okay. So, so I agree with you. The way Rothbard tries to use that in well, in welfare economics is a little, is, is dubious and, and could lead to problems and possibly even contradict what he wants to, or it, like you say, it proves too much, you know, cause yeah, yeah. I mean, especially too, somebody could have a gun to your head or they could say, yeah, we kidnapped your kid, go sign that contract. And clearly that doesn't prove, you know, so mm-hmm. There's lots of ways you can say there's things motivating behavior, and yet we normally use mm-hmm. a, a general understanding. So likewise, mm-hmm. somebody's saying, you know, I don't like the factory owner putting soot mm-hmm. on my clothes hanging out. It doesn't really work to just say, well, mm-hmm. for all we know, you're just saying that. You know, maybe you like your vocal cords vibrating. Who knows? Yeah, and, um, and, and unfortunately, this distracts, you know, not just Austrians, but also economists in general from the psychological evidence that they're onto something. So there is this whole psychological literature on what they call social desirability bias. 
And the quick version of it is that actions speak louder than words. They got a lot of evidence on that. People claim to go to church more often than they really do. They claim to vote more often than they really do. Claim to give more to charity than they really do, and so on. So the idea that people will say things that are not true because they sound good, right? That is well well documented. But I think it's just much more helpful to treat it as an empirical rule of mm-hmm. saying, well, let's go and double check that what the person is saying actually fits with what they're doing, rather than to have it as a philosophical axiom where we just ignore on principle what people say in favor of what they do. Okay. So yeah, I, right. And that's, so you're right. It's nuanced on both sides, but I, I think the more, the more defensible position, which I guess we'll call Austrian is to say that, you know, the, the purpose of the value scales or whatever that's to help us as economists interpret action and that it's a real, so have, I think where it comes down with the indifference stuff, Mm -hmm. like to say, you know, you could never explain. So, so let me put it this way. In your essay, I think you are saying Rothbard for sure, and maybe Mises are saying the indifference isn't a thing, mm-hmm. but sure it is. I know it is. I can interest, you know, through yeah. but I take it more that they're not denying that people could be indifferent, but that you would never use indifference to explain a choice. Right. Whereas and I, and I it's, at least it seems to them that that's how neoclassicals, like they go at the, when they start consumer theory, they have indifference maps. So it looks like they're building up their choice theory on the basis of indifference when that doesn't make any sense. I think that's where the the first line attack is coming from. Right. So, I mean, I believe that argument myself for a couple of years, and then I decided it's just totally wrong. You can explain okay. a lot with indifference. You can explain things like why, you know, like at what point do people decide they're not going to, you know, that they're not going to move from one state to another. Right, and you say, well, there's the people that definitely gain and they move, and there's the people that definitely think they uh, think they would lose that uh, that don't go, and then there's the people just to the margin, those who are indifferent. And we use this kind of reasoning all the time, like you know, like you know, like oh, how much extra can I afford to charge for this premium shrimp? It's like, well, I can keep raising the price until the marginal consumer is indifferent. Right. So I think actually indifference we use it all the time, and furthermore. Uh, since Rothbard and Mises did not have a problem with the idea of profit maximization, right? Well, implicit in profit maximization is if two different business strategies give you the same profit, the businessman is therefore indifferent between those two things. Because if you're maximizing profit and two of equal profit, what else could you be mm-hmm. other than indifferent? All right. Let me, and again, I've, I've been on both sides of this, so I, I understand where you're coming from, but let me push back now. I think what the standard Misesian and Rothbardian would say, and let's take the state one, right? So you've got people, they live in one state, and then some of them during the course of the year move to the adjacent state or wherever. And so how do we explain the people who moved? Well, clearly they preferred the other state to where they were. Yep. There are a bunch of people who stay where, they're, where they are. Mm-hmm. And for, at least for a lot of them, it's because they strictly prefer where yeah, they yeah, are to moving. Almost all. And so but then, but then it seems are there, like, like are there not you, people who really are actually right on the edge well there don't, there doesn't need to be though it's it's possible that yes, you know, so every single say, person has a strict preference it's possible you are giving you're giving the ground because it's supposed to be a methodological point that indifference is simply not something that can explain behavior and right, but i'm that, saying it is but but hang on though <laughs> you said no in, indifference explains behavior and you picked a case where even in your own example, clearly we need not indifference to explain most of it. And at best, maybe there's some knife edge people that are on the fence. Right, right. But, but, there, but those need, people but are crucial because, because you know, there's a question of, so what, if there were a slight change in the conditions, one state got slightly better unemployment, 
that would tip mm-hmm. those indifferent people to wanting to move. And that's how we are actually explaining behavior using this concept. But yeah, you know, like usually, you know, I think, I think in, in the paper, I just talk about like a red sweater versus a green sweater. Surely most males have had the experience of, I really actually couldn't care less which color it is. It makes zero difference to me at all. And yet Austrians are faced with some kind of a methodological problem. And I've argued with this several times with Walter Block. And there he says, all right, yes, of course I'm indifferent often between sweaters, but not in a scientific sense. Scientifically, I'm not. And this is where I say, okay, so when you say you're indifferent, is that false or is it just true in a different sense of the word? And if it's just true in a different sense of the word, then why do you think that's not what people are saying in the first place? Okay. Yeah, yeah I guess I mean, I'm, I'm not going go to go back to my version to redefining words that are perfectly well understood by people yeah. beforehand, unless you've got a really good reason. And I don't think you've got let, it. Yeah, let me ask you that. How much of it is ba- – so I think when you're teaching a regular economics class, the reason you end up, quote, having to use indifference – is because you have a, a continuity problem, like a, a you know a mathematical. Oh, you can have one point zero zero seven units of milk, mm-hmm. and in order to explain that, yeah, it's got to be you know there's got to be a point of indifference. Otherwise, the math yeah, breaks yeah. down, the calculus doesn't yeah. work. So I'm you know I'm saying I'm wondering if in practice though people aren't choosing among a you know an infinitely divisible good. Clearly, you don't need indifference to explain most of it, and it's, yeah. it sounds like you well maybe on that that knife edge case is where indifference comes into play. Well, I would say that once you take psychology more seriously, you realize it's not just a knife edge case. There are a lot of attributes that a lot of people just don't care about at all. Like, then you've got mm. a big mass of indifferent people, right? So, okay, but, so, you know, so it's red versus green shirts. <laughs> it's not just one person in a billion who's indifferent. It could easily be 20% of your customers are indifferent. So it's not just some rare, weird hypothetical. Okay, and here I'm. I want to say his name just because I. This is where I got the Gene Callahan years ago when he wrote a critique of your essay. This is the point he made. So it, it, we see people they go into the store and you know there's red and green sweaters and guys are just grabbing it and they they clearly you know don't care. They're and the way Gene was explaining is he's saying he's not denying that they could be indifferent there, but also too like one sweater might weigh a little bit more than the other, and I don't care you know whether it's eight point zero zero one ounces or not. Who cares? But the point is to explain the action, like if the guy grabbed the left one as opposed to the right one, and the one happened to be green, the other happened to be red, it's not that you're explaining the action because of the indifference. It's the indifference isn't relevant. So yes, I could be indifferent mm-hmm. between the colors, but there must be some reason I picked the left one. And even if it's because I flipped a coin, mm-hmm. Gene's point was, well, yeah, so you demonstrated the preference that you decided on you know, that one was because the head in your mind you assigned to the left one and it came up heads and that's why you preferred it. So I think that's where he's getting like to explain your your choice on the basis of indifference doesn't make sense. We're not denying that people could be indifferent among certain attributes. I think that was the, the way he was trying to explain it. Right. I mean, again, I would just say if you see there's two colors and people look to see if there's any price difference and even a price difference of a penny flips them, you know, that is as close of a demonstration that that indifference exists as you would need. I mean, to me, like the, the weird thing is why do people want to go and defend this thesis so strongly. And I mean, it seems to me it really is part of, part of Austrian identity where they just don't want to do it. And so th- there's a great effort made. And yet ultimately, it is it is a very useful way of thinking about the world. It's, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been talking with economists and then the question is, or how much would someone have to pay you to be indifferent between uh, you know, going home tonight or spending a night in jail, right? Or eating a cockroach or what have you, mm-hmm. right? And in a way, actually, whenever you talk about willingness to pay, you could say, 
this is okay, so, you know, so like this is the point where you are indifferent between having the good or uh, without the money or having the money without the good. So again, indifference pops up at so many places. Yes, you if you really were stubborn, you could just eradicate it from your vocabulary. And I would say why when it's such a intuitive and introspectively plausible concept. Okay, great. And so even there, though, just to you, and then we'll move on. Um, like that's you're kind of getting at what I meant with the mathematical continuity issue. That's you say, hey, would you rather mm-hmm. spend the night? You know, if I gave you one dollar, would you spend the night in jail as opposed mm-hmm. to going home? You say, absolutely not. I say, okay, what if I gave you a billion dollars? Yeah. Oh, totally, I'd spend the night in jail for a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And then you just keep going back yeah, and yeah. forth, and eventually you get to a point yeah. where they're like, eh. that's kind of what I yeah. mean. That for most of that continuum it's a clear preference one way or the other and maybe there's one little mm-hmm. life where you kind of eventually eh, yeah. i guess i'm indifferent yeah. and, especially and if you start subdividing it of when you're indifferent is very informative it's very informative. okay but, uh, but I mean, it's, it's one, not where, as, one where when you, yeah. when you answer that question i understand you whereas if you whereas if you just said well i pay more like i take less than a billion but more than a dollar all right well i still don't really know much about your preference but if you say all right it would cost me 237 dollars to get me to spend the night in the, in the prison tonight all right, now I've got an idea of where you are. Okay, but it, <laughs> even there, though, it seems weird to me to say, ah, see, I used indifference to explain action when it almost sounds more like I used strict non-indifference to explain 99.99% of the ch- hypothetical choices. And that was the, anyway, we're, we're, we're kind of arguing over a word, but at that, mm-hmm. I guess that's what I'm getting at is mm-hmm. part of it's just. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very useful concept and I just don't see what's wrong with it. So it doesn't seem like you see anything wrong with it either. When I was arguing with Walter Block, it came down to, look, at most you're right one time out of a billion, Brian. And I said, well, look, if I'm right one time out of a billion, then your argument's wrong because your argument says it's always so as a matter of, of intellectual principle. Yeah, all right, I'll move on. It, it's, I, I, But again, that seems like a, a huge gulf between that and saying I used indifference to explain mm-hmm. action, but f- fair enough. Okay, we only got like five or six minutes here. So the the last thing I wanted to talk to you about was, to my knowledge, you're the only other prominent libertarian who writes a lot on pacifism mm-hmm. or has written. So can you, and as you know, you know, I call myself a pacifist. I think there are some real hardcore ones that would say I, I cheat because I'm, I'm okay with like a, you know, using force that doesn't cause bodily harm to me. Like that would just be such a better society where the, you know, the bank robbers are running and the, and the police like throw nets on them and stuff like that. And I try to just get liberty, especially anarcho-capitalists who already see, you know, the, they're used to answering the objections of, oh, gee, you pr- privatized prisons. That's crazy. Your, your society would be conquered in a week. And you say, well, no, actually private defense. That's what, what I end up doing with pacifism. So no, a society that renounces the use of causing bodily harm, even to aggressors would not be a sitting duck and look at all these mechanisms that could arise, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, that's that's where I'm coming from in this stuff. And it, can you explain what your perspective is and some of the things you've written? Yeah, I'd say I'm coming from a, a very different point. So what I say is not that there's anything wrong with self-defense, uh, you know, even deadly self-defense. Mm-hmm. I'm pro-death penalty, so I've you know, not you know, not as it's necessary as a practice, but in principle, is it okay to go and kill someone for murder? I think that's uh, quite fine. At what point would you be indifferent between killing someone? I mean, a lot of people, I think I, I think I would do it for free. Like, you know, I look, if you gave me Eric Honecker, yeah. a former you know, dictator of East Germany, I would kill him mm-hmm. with my bare hands. If you, and I think I'd enjoy it. 
<laughs> okay, well then, then but uh, right, well, this is like interesting. He deserved, so he, he really deserved it so badly. Okay, so maybe I'm mischaracterizing. I, I thought you had called yourself a pacifist. Yeah, you know, so, so I do call that, myself a pacifist, but in the following sense. Okay. So when you know, I so I pose war making, pose war making. So not you know, so not violence, but rather and really on this Rothbardian point of modern warfare is never defensive in practice because the mm-hmm. weapons the people use are so indiscriminate. And at best, you could say that it's, that, that their use is negligent. So if you just look at any any actual modern war, just like very rarely do, like does any side fight in a way where they are where, where they would not go to jail if they were just fighting regular private crime, right? And then from, you know from there, I have an argument very similar to my one on immigration, where I say, look, there is a moral presumption against using this kind of indiscriminate violence, which is what modern war actually always involves. And then I don't say that it's never justifiable. I say that to justify it, you would need to know with high confidence that there was a very large gain, right? So mm-hmm. not just that it's a expected net positive, but that it's a very large expected net positive. And then I look at this empirical work on how good are people at actually forecasting the effects of war. Uh, so political psychologists like Phil Tetlock have done a lot of work on this. People are bad at this. So when someone is confident that fighting a war is going to work out well, and they say, look, yes, a bunch of we're going to we're going to wind up uh, killing a bunch of innocent people. Maybe we'll do it on purpose, like nuking Hiroshima. Maybe it will just be collateral damage, like in Iraq, where our bombs are in the vicinity of people, and it's just too much work to go and 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 target more narrowly. But in any case, I say that you know, in this case, it would only be justified to fight the war if you actually, you know, if you knew with great confidence that this would lead to very large net benefits. And yet people are so bad at this that it doesn't pass the test. So now in practice, this does wind up giving me something, putting me something close to opposing every war that I've heard of or every mm-hmm. war fought in the 20th century, just because it's so hard to come up with an example of a real one where people could reasonably foreseen that it would have very good net consequences. I mean, that ex post, of course, sometimes it's great. So South Korea versus North Korea, that's because of the Korean War. It's true, right? But uh, at the time, however... If you were to say, like, we know with great confidence this is going to lead to really good consequences, I mean, at the time, I would say you should be pretty worried about starting World War III from in the Korean War, right? And, so, hang on. I, are, you're saying even after the fact, like, you are you think it was the, the Korean police action what was justified for U.S. forces? Yeah, so what I say is, is you know, the, the wrong thing was done because they didn't actually know what was going to happen. Yeah, so I mean, I like I would you know say it's you know, morally similar to firing into a crowd and you accidentally hit Hitler, mm-hmm. where you know it was wrong. What you did, it was like the consequences were good, but what you did was still wrong because you acted so negligently. Okay, okay, but I mean, couldn't one argue that even like the horrors of what's going on in North Korea to this day were partly because of that action, or 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 not? You're saying no, we constrain that. Well, so. You know, I would say that it is very likely, although not certain, that South Korea would be in the same position as North Korea, and they would all be ruled by the Kim family okay. in abject in abject tyranny, right? So, you know, there, that was a war where the gains turned out to be very large, but you couldn't reasonably foresee that at the time. And of course, Vietnam is a case where over a million people get killed, almost all the innocent people, well, at least like a really majority innocent people anyway, and then communism wins anyway. So, and that's actually quite, you know, a quite common result of war. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, basically, and it comes down to this Mike humor point of there's a non-aggression axiom. Modern warfare is never really defensive because it's so indiscriminate. And 
Therefore, if you're going to actually wage war, you need to have very high confidence. There's going to be very large net benefits. And it's unclear that anyone can reasonably have that kind of confidence based upon the evidence we have on how bad people's forecasts are on this. Okay, well, well, thank you. I know uh, you got to get going here, Brian. So everyone, uh, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 91 to get the links. My guest has been Brian Kaplan. His latest book is Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. Uh, Brian, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, it was a great pleasure. Thanks a lot, Bob. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.